Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Dan Evans holds a 75th anniversary research fellowship as a soil scientist in Cranfield University's Soil and Agri-Food Institute. As a physical geography graduate and expert in soil and sustainable land systems, Dan is here with us today to talk about his recent research, including the importance of sustainability, urban agriculture, and what you can do today to create a healthier biosphere. Dan, 68% of global population will live in urban areas by 2050. Why is soil important in a future world of urbanites? Well, in general, soils are absolutely essential. Um, If we think about the food we eat, uh, to the water that we drink, from the clothes that we wear, to the the gardens that we tender, um, the energy that we consume, to the foundations of our built environment, soils make a paramount contribution to our lives. Uh, they support a, a diverse array of, of habitats and ecosystems and they sequester carbon to help manage climate change and they support the cycling of vital nutrients required by both flora and fauna. And their importance in our lives is really underscored by their role in delivering our sustainable development goals, zero hunger, uh, good health and well-being, climate action and life on land. And as the world urban population increases, we really do face a paradox because more land will be needed to accommodate an urbanising population. But this is the very land and its provision of soil that's essential to sustain this population. So one of the challenges that we therefore face this century is finding and implementing ways of integrating soil into our urban space and urban life. And I think this requires a a whole system approach, uniting soils into the built space, the individuals and societies that occupy these spaces, and the other tangible and perhaps non-tangible resources that are present in our towns and cities. A key reason is surely the fact that our soils, peatlands included, uh, are also a major store of organic carbon. Yeah, and I'd argue that soils are one of the best allies for combating climate change. Soils are are one of the largest land-based stores of carbon. They contain approximately 1,500 billion tonnes of carbon, and that represents more than that's found in the atmosphere and the plants combined. And the process of, of capturing and transferring carbon from the atmosphere to the soil is an essential process called carbon sequestration. And when plants absorb the carbon dioxide, this is initially converted into a food resource, of course. But when these plants die, they compose into organic matter and transfer this carbon into the soil. And I think it's it's important to say that all the time we're thinking about our soils, we're thinking not just about the sand, silt and clay that makes up them, but also that essential organic matter, that organic carbon. When you talk about the transfer of carbon into soil, um, could you give us a rough overview of soil structure and how it, how it moves from the, um, from the atmosphere into the biosphere? Yeah, of course. Well, 
soils are three-dimensional um, and they're made up of very many different types of layers, each of which works in a slightly different way to provide those essential goods and services that I was talking about. Uh, but the soils that you and I and many of your listeners see on a day-to-day -day basis, um, it, it's just a soil at the ground surface. There's, you know, it's like ordering a, a wonderfully multi-layered cake and only enjoying the icing on the top. So if we take a knife and we cut down through a, a hypothetical soil profile, um, like you would when showing off the cake, what different layers, what's that structure of the soil look like? And I think the first thing to say is that there's no one typical soil. I mean, there's about 30 different types of soil in our international soil classification system, and there's about a further 185 different types within those that can be used to differentiate the different types of soil we see around the planet. But they have some kind of common ingredients, and often many have what we call soil horizons, and they each have very different mineral and organic matter contents. So at the very bottom of the soil profile, we often see what's called a parent material horizon, and that's the material from which soil is formed. In this case, it could be igneous, sedimentary, metamorphic rock. And sometimes that parent material may be glacial or river deposits or maybe material that we've deposited. But the soil which forms from this parent material can be divided into other layers as well. At the surface, there's often a topsoil, what we call the A horizon. That's relatively high in organic matter. That's where that carbon sequestration is happening most of all. And it's a soil into which plants are often cultivated. And underlying this topsoil is what we call the subsoil or B horizon. And that's a thicker zone of soil, which generally tends to be below the plough depth, below the, the depth of cultivation. It's a paler horizon, and that's a result of it having much less organic matter. And soil formation is long and slow, uh, if I'm correct in saying that. Um, can you explain how, how is it made? I know that's a rather basic question. It's a basic question, but it's also a very complex um, question, but also a very exciting question because the formation of soil is basically the formation of our future. Uh, to a large extent, soil formation takes place down at the bedrock. Uh, so let's imagine for a minute or two that we take a lift down through the soil to the bedrock. And what we might find when we arrived is rock which to you and I might not appear to be changing. If our lift suddenly broke down and we hung around for a, a few thousand years, uh, we'd start to see some extraordinary changes. What we'd do is watch the, un the rock undergo very slow weathering. This is mediated by physical, chemical and biological processes. So the acidity perhaps of percolating rainwater might gnaw away at the rock chemically and that might produce hairline fractures. Uh, water might then fill these cracks, freezing and thawing daily to further weaken the rock. Perhaps a plant root might force itself through and open up that fracture even more. And before too long, the glues holding the rock together would start to become dissolved and released. And after all of this weathering activity, the rock has now morphed into 
a different type of material, something we call saprolite. Basically, saprolite is another word for weathered rock. It's neither rock nor soil. The easiest way to think about it is a bit like a biscuit. You can hold it in your hand and it can still be consolidated. But if you applied manual pressure to it, it would break down into individual grains. And over time, that saprolite breaks down more and more into unconsolidated particles of sand, silt and clay. And as that happens, we see the very beginnings of soil being formed. And does saprolite or soil move? Well, soil doesn't move in the sense that uh, when saprolite turns into soil, basically what we're seeing is that horizon, that boundary between soil and saprolite moving progressively further down the profile. So at the very start of maybe the soil formation process, that boundary is relatively close to the top of the land surface. And then over time, the weathering processes take place, they act on that bedrock, and that boundary between soil and bedrock progressively moves down the profile until such a point where the soil may be one metre or two metres. And at that point, interestingly, we see soil formation rates start to slow down. And as a result of those chemical, physical, biological mechanisms that induce weathering, start to have less effect on the bedrock because it's shielded by that one or two metres of soil. So we start to see almost an equilibrium in the rates of soil formation at that point. Uh, but there are soils, of course, of course, around the world, which are much deeper than one or two metres of, uh, of, of soil. And those tend to be in the tropical regions. So in Brazil, you might find a soil 30 or 40 metres thick. And that's a result of very long stages of, of intense weathering activity. After that uh, stage of equilibrium, what are the challenges of degrading soils if it starts to be worn away? Yes, well, soils face growing demands. Um, by the middle of the century, by 2050, it's expected that the global population will soar to more than 9 billion. And our global soil resources will need to provide more food, more clean water, more of those raw materials. The confounding issue, I think, is that over a third of these soils are already currently moderately or highly degraded. Basically, the soil has a reduced capacity to function, to deliver those goods and services. And there are many different types of soil degradation, from a, a polluted soil, which harbours contaminants, to a compacted soil, which has lost that essential structure to support uh, crop growth and, and root development. Um, and soil erosion itself is a particularly critical type of soil degradation process. It often refers to the, the absolute loss of soil from the soil profile. And effectively, that implies that the soil profile is thinning and left unmanaged. A thinning soil, a soil prone to high rates of erosion, is one that can expose the underlying parent material. And at that stage, it's incredibly difficult to salvage the soil. As we've said, soils form very slowly. It's quite worrying, the, the statement you just made about reduced capacity and then increased demand. Um, it's very clear that um, something needs to be done or it needs to be conserved. Yes, that's 
it's a very important point that we start to think about the ways not only of reducing the rates of soil erosion and soil degradation, but actually begin to think proactively and constructively about how we can form healthy soils around the world. And I think we've often thought of soil formation as a very natural process, a, a geogenic process, a process that takes place at the bedrock, out of sight, and perhaps therefore out of mind. But there are ways in which we might be able to help the soil formation process, and that requires innovative uh, research, it requires transformative solutions, it requires us to think uh, beyond the box maybe, beyond our own disciplines about how we might form soils from new materials, um, particularly those which we might find in our trash cans, because the whole ultimate uh, uh, story of the soil is that what comes from soil will eventually go back to the soil. So if we do have food waste, then why not use it to create that, that compost in our backyards? Why not use that, that, those waste resources to help us form soils for the future? You recently undertook some work on soil erosion rates. Can you describe your methodology and what you found out about soil lifespans? Well, there have been many headlines over the five years or so that I've been uh, pretty much active in, in soil science research um, throughout my PhD and, and, and now into my fellowship. Um, there's been many headlines suggesting that the world's topsoil could be gone in 60 years. Um, but these claims have, have never really been supported with evidence. I led a study recently which, by all accounts, provided the first global insight into how soil erosion may be affecting the longevity of our soils. We pulled together a large database of soil erosion uh, from over 200 sites across 38 countries, and we calculated how long it would take for the top 30 centimetres to erode at each location. And this topsoil, incidentally, is rich in nutrients and organic matter, that carbon, uh, which makes it really important for growing food and fibre, uh, feed and, and obviously fuel. And what we found is that more than 90% of those conventionally farmed soils in the study were thinning. The erosion rates were faster than the rates of soil formation. And what's more, 16% would lose their topsoil in less than a century. And these were found all over the world. There wasn't one particular region that fared better than, than another. What we found is that soil erosion is exceeding the rates of soil formation across the planet. And it often had to do with land use rather than a particular wealth uh, economic stability or, or demographic uh, uh, characteristic of, of the country concerned. I'm going to try and phrase this in, in a positive way, um, based upon that, that very worrying um, explanation. What opportunities do we have for conservation in the future? Well, in our data set, soils managed with conservation strategies tended to have longer lifespans. Um, and what I mean by that is that the time it would take for that top 30 centimetres to erode was longer if the soil was managed with uh, soil conservation strategies. And in some cases, these practices also promoted soil thickening. So actually, soil formation rates were exceeding those erosion rates. We started to build soil. Um, and 
Converting arable land to forest is one of the best ways to lengthen soil lifespans. Um, similarly, converting the arable land to grassland can also lengthen the lifespan of our soils. Um, but maybe these approaches are less ideal because they don't allow farming to continue. So if we wanted to allow farming to, to continue on these soils, perhaps we need to implement other kinds of of conservation strategies, such as cover cropping, for instance. These, uh, these plants which are grown between the cropping seasons that protects the soil are also very highly effective in, in lengthening soil lifespans. But it could also be just the direction of ploughing. So if you plough across the, the land, across the contours, rather than downslope, that can reduce erosion rates significantly. Hill slope terracing in some cases can be beneficial if the slope is particularly steep. So what our study and our research has shown is that we really do have the tools and practices to make a difference. It's about employing the appropriate conservation methods in the right place that can help protect and enhance our soil resource and obviously the future of our food and farming. You've already mentioned that we have a limited amount of harvests left. How many years do we have specifically in the UK um, with our arable soils, for example? Or is it impossible to put a number on it? Well, as you might expect, there's no UK erosion rate. There's no single erosion rate for, for the UK. Um, there is a range, uh, and that's because, of course, soil erosion itself is governed by many different factors. Um, you know, for instance, um, a study recently found erosion rates in the UK to be about 5.2 tonnes per hectare annually uh, for arable land. But for grassland, it's about 1.8 so it really does depend on on, uh, on many different factors. Of course, in some locations, soil erosion rates are faster, and these are often associated with extreme weather events, uh, the likes of which we may find more common with the latest IPCC predictions. Um, but the essential question here is how do these rates compare with the rates of soil formation? Until very recently, it was very difficult to answer that because we didn't actually have UK soil formation rate knowledge. Uh, and that was one of the aims of my PhD research. It was to measure the rates at which soils form in the UK and compare those rates uh, with erosion. Uh, um, some of the UK arable farms that I've studied, um, farms in, in Nottinghamshire and in Shropshire, um, down in Somerset and also here in, in Bedfordshire, where I'm currently based, the erosion rate is about 1.2 millimetres per year. So let's put that into context. That's about 25 times faster than the rate of soil formation. So what does this ultimately mean for the UK? Well, we can't say for definite because we've not studied every soil across the UK. But for the sites that I've researched, it means that in a worst case scenario, we'd lose the topsoil, that 30 centimetres of, of A horizon, in about 140 years. And the whole soil profile down to bedrock would be lost in, in just over 200 years. You're very interested in encouraging re-engagement with our soils and for people to ground themselves in a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, for example, the 5.2 tonnes of soil that are lost per hectare from arable land um, per year. Was that per year? That was per year. 
Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Per year. Um, what was the lockdown letters beds and the tea bag experiment that you developed um, recently? Well, I'm very interested in, in encouraging um, everyone to re-engage with, with their soils. I think that, you know, that's an essential connection that uh, we've always had, that enduring relationship between the land that we live on. I mean, just take the name of our planet itself, Earth. Uh, it's a, an explicit reference to the fact that we are land-dwelling species with a large dependence uh, on our soils. Um, but it's also the case, I think, that we've become perhaps somewhat disconnected from the soils around us. You know, soils are degrading, uh, urbanisation encroaches fertile land, soils are becoming fragmented and sealed. You know, there have been many moments in history when society has been compelled to feel more grounded, you know, uh, perhaps during the, the last war, World War II, for example, when when threats to food supplies encourage the public to produce their own fruit and vegetables, cultivate, uh, dig for victory, those those kind of messages. Um, and in the last couple of years, particularly as a result of us having to, to wrestle with another global conflict, this time obviously a microscopic enemy, um, I think that we've all felt the need to become grounded once more. So it's been a case of kind of lockdown, look down in many ways there's been a surge of of home uh, home growing fruit and vegetables um and the lockdown lettuce beds was a project initiated by uh, the urban revolution project which is in part based in cranfield and also based in uh, liverpool and, and uh, led by researchers at lancaster university lockdown lettuce beds was a citizen science survey what we wanted to do is get citizens interested in food growing or perhaps those who've never done food growing before to get into their gardens to grow some lettuces during the lockdown and to report on how they felt, how the process was for them. And basically was trying to get them engaged with not just growing crops for their own food security, their household food security, but also to get them in contact with nature to get them into the fresh air to make them feel perhaps more connected more grounded with the soils around them so the lockdown lettuce beds uh, was a a regional based citizen science based survey um, we held it uh, here in bedfordshire uh, in uh, in villages far and wide around the county um, and we ran it over a course of of about 12 to to 13 weeks during the lockdown um, in in 2020 and what we found essentially is that lots of people uh, had uh, very different types of experiences. Many who had uh, grown uh, lettuces before uh, had uh, reported good results. Maybe some of them reported less favourable results. Sometimes the lettuces didn't grow. But whatever the state of the lettuces at the end of the experiment, they all took part. They all, to some extent, reconnected with the soils around them. So... That was, in a sense, what the, the lockdown lettuce uh, bed uh, project was about. You've reminded me to go and check my vegetable patch. Thank you very much for joining us today, Dan. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a delight to have you here. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. 
School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.